morning. Peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, which is likely the majority, uh, my name is Cole Kirby, and I have the honor of serving at Sojourn Montrose as a church planting resident, which just means that I serve under our local elders with the purpose of being trained, equipped, and by God's grace qualified uh, for the work of planting a new neighborhood church here in the next couple of years. Um, and so with that, I'm here to kick off the church planting resident sermon series which will be going through the book of 2 Peter. And so before we dive into the text, I want to give us a little bit of context of the theme uh, of the book of 2 Peter. What we'll see is the book has three chapters with an overarching theme of the perseverance or endurance of the saints in faith, which is to say that the Christian life is not a matter of whether at one time you believed and professed faith. It's not a matter of whether at one time you walked down an aisle and made a commitment or checked a box on a card or were baptized. The question asked of you will not be, did you once believe and walk in Jesus? But when he returns, the question that will be asked are you found believing in him and walking in him today? And so with that, the Christian Life is a lifelong process of pursuing God so that when he returns, which Jesus has promised that he surely will, that we will be found in him, walking in him, believing in him, trusting in him. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be walking through Peter's letter, which is primarily about perseverance in the faith, the endurance of the faith. Next week, Paul will walk through the second chapter, which talks primarily about right belief and avoiding believing false teaching. Because if we are to persevere in a faith in Christ, then we have to persevere believing the right things about who he is, what he's done, and who that makes us. And then in the last week of the series, Carlos will be going through chapter 3, which kind of gives us the reason at the very end of the book as to why Peter wrote it. And the reason he gives for writing the book is that Jesus is going to return. And that that's a promise that we can count on. And that we ought to persevere in love for Christ, in obedience to Christ, in cherishing Him, in trusting in the work that He's done for us. So that when He returns, we will be found in Him and given entrance into His heavenly, glorious, and eternal kingdom. But this week will be in chapter 1. And chapter 1 is primarily about holiness and how supplementing our faith with right belief and right action that yields the fruits of righteousness is paramount to us persevering in the faith. And ultimately what we'll see is that we have been given everything that we need in Christ. As those who have trusted in Him, we've been given everything that we need to walk in holiness and if we do so consistently, we will never fall away from him. But he will always be near to us. And if we do that, we will know him more and more all the time. And so before we jump into the text, I'm going to pray for our time. Lord, we're thankful for your word. And we're thankful for the truth that in Jesus and in his righteousness, in his sacrificial death, in his victorious resurrection, that we have all that we need. 
Would you reveal yourself to us this morning through your word? Would you draw us by your spirit to repentance and deeper trust in you? Would you sanctify us as your church that we might better reflect your glory and your grace and your goodness? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus who saves. So because there is so much text this morning, we're going to jump right in to verse 3. And in verses 3 and 4, we'll see Peter lay the theological foundation that we need to understand to move into the application. He says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Church, this is a profound statement. Peter is telling us that God has called us to himself in salvation. And that he's done this by the nature of his glory and his excellence. Meaning that out of the goodness of God, he has called us to be his people. And, 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 and he says that by the glory and excellence. Excellence here is an important word because excellence here is a moral term or an ethical category. It's by God's supreme rightness that he has made us his people. That it was an act of rightness of God that he has called us to himself. And moreover, the text tells us that the salvation is more realized as we come to know God in his beauty. And this knowing is not just knowing about God. It's knowing God in relationship through the, the priesthood of the Son, Jesus, who saves and then we get to know God in a beautiful relationship. And moreover, the text tells us that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And what Peter is referring to here is that as God has called us to salvation and as we've come to know the Lord through faith and come to know Jesus relationally, that Jesus in his grace gives us his spirit, the spirit that sustained him in obedience on earth, that humbled him to the point that he would suffer in our stead on the cross, and then empowered him to be victorious over death and resurrection. That Jesus has given us that spirit, that we might have all that we need to experience eternal life, that begins at the moment of belief and never ends, and to experience godliness. Which means to be like God in his excellence. Life and godliness are ours to have because God has given us his spirit and has called us to know him in relationship. Peter goes on in verse 4 to say, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sin and sinful desire. So God's glory and excellence is his very nature. This is his makeup. This is who God is. He is glorious and he is excellent and he is faithful and he is good. And out of the wellspring of God's goodness, he has given to his people, the church, what Peter says are precious and very great promises. This is a natural thing for God to do out of the goodness that is overflowing in his characters to give his people church promises. The promises that Peter are, 
is referring to are likely the ones that he points to throughout this letter. Uh, we could read promises and assume that that is the overarching covenant structure of the Bible where God has made promises to his people, beginning with Adam and then to Abraham and Moses and, and so on and so forth. But I'm convinced that Peter is referring to the promises he talks about in this book. And the two promises are linked. The first is the promise that he will talk about in chapter 3, which is the promise that Jesus will return. That he will return to judge the nations and to establish justice and glory and a kingdom that will never end. And the promise that he will refer to in verse 11, which is when Peter says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you, meaning the church, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the promises he's talking about are the promises that Jesus will come again and he will bring about good justice and in so doing, his people will be invited to taste and see the fullness of glory in his kingdom forever. And these are comforting promises for us, church. They're comforting because we live in the midst of a world that opposes Christ and his kingdom. We live in a world where we see famine and disease and war and violence and injustice, and we can trust that our Lord will return to exact justice, and that he will return to deliver his people finally and fully. And Peter says that these promises are also the means through which we might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, when Peter says partakers in the divine nature, we have to understand what he means. Uh, the church, uh, there have been people in the church throughout history who have gotten this way wrong in very dangerous ways. What Peter is not telling us is that we will become gods or part of God or as powerful as God. And there certainly is a mystery to what that means, that we will partake in the divine nature. But ultimately what Peter is talking about is that based on the promises of God to return and give entrance to heaven, to his people, and by the gift and power of the Spirit that he's freely given to us, he has given us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. And so partaking in the divine nature means that we can truly be like God in his excellence, in his righteousness, in his ability to do what is good and to express love. We will get to participate in God's character and in his essence. And I know that when I read this, and when I read this as I was studying, but I don't know that that is true for me. Because I know my sin, and I know the, the depths of my heart and my desire for things that are not godly. And so when I read Peter promising me that I might become a partaker in the divine nature, I said, I'm not so sure, Peter. And, and you might be sitting here thinking the same thing. You might be thinking, I can believe that, but only once I die and go to heaven, or only when Jesus returns and establishes kingdom, will I really be able to participate in God's beauty in the way that Peter is talking 
And so if your question is, is can I really experience this? And can I really experience this on this side of eternity? The answer to that question, I'm convinced, is both yes and no. It is true that we live in a world that is full of sin and misery. It's true that we as Christians, even as people saved by grace through faith, still have to deal with our flesh waging war against our spirit as we fight to give in to sinful desires. It's true that we're tempted all the time toward those passions that we hate. And so these things will be true of us and the world that we live in until we die, until Jesus returns. That is sure. But the last portion of this verse gives us a helpful understanding of how the question of can I experience this sort of holiness now, how that applies. When Peter says in verse 4 that the people of God are those who, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In God calling us to himself, we have been given freedom and a new citizenship. We are no longer slaves to sin or sinful desire if we put our hope in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, we are no longer citizens of the world that has been corrupted by sin. But our citizenship lies elsewhere. It lies in heaven with him who has saved us. So that makes us rather sojourners, exiles, and aliens here on earth. And it's precisely because God has given us an escape from the world of sin and sinful desire that we can possess our eternal life and walk in godliness and even partake in the divine nature today. Because this is not our homeland. And so in verses 3 and 4, we've seen in the text that God in his infinite grace, in his power, in his love, in his majesty, in his moral excellence, has called a people to himself. And in so doing, he has made his glorious character known to those he has called to himself in saving faith. He's made himself known to us both in knowledge of how good he is and in relational knowledge of who he is. And in all of that, he has given us his spirit that we would have all things that are necessary pertaining to walking in our eternal life and to possessing a godliness that allows us to experience the essence and beauty of God. To be clear, this is something that God has done for us. Something that he's done for us through Jesus. He has given us all of these things out of his good pleasure and we have not accomplished it on our own. And so... We will not be gods or a part of God, as I said before, but church, we surely can be godly. This is now possible for us because of what Christ has done. The people of God can partake in and experience God's perfect morality in all of its splendor. And that will be made fully true for us upon his return. And so then we move into verse 5, which is a beautiful transition marking the, the movement from theological truth to practical application. 
Peter writes, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So Peter here is making a logical conclusion that if God has in his infinite grace given us all that we need to possess and experience life and godliness, we should take every ounce of effort that we have day by day and pursue it. Because what was formerly impossible in unbelief, holiness, has now been made possible by the grace of God in the lives of those he has called by faith. So, so in Peter's spirit-guided reasoning, he's concluded that the Christians should make every effort to be holy, based simply upon the fact that they have been given the opportunity to be holy. In holiness, Peter knows we get to experience godliness. And in godliness, we get to participate in the character and will of God as we have deeper knowledge of him and his character and his love for us. And church, what could be more joy-producing than to actively engage and participate in the character and essence of the majestic God of all things? This isn't a call for the Christian to work hard so that God might love them. This is a call to respond to the graceful love that God has already given us to pursue a relationship with him that will produce joy as we understand the depths and the glory of the God of all things. So we should strive to be holy because God has afforded us the opportunity to be holy. And in this we will see know and experience God to greater measures. In verses 5 through 7, Peter gives us a list of qualities. And these are qualities that complement one another and work together, and they're all under the broad banner of supplementing our faith. The list includes faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. This isn't an exhaustive list of all of the attributes of a, a Christian who is walking in faithfulness. But it is a group of general qualities of an obedient Christian, and qualities that work together, beginning with faith in a loving God, and resulting in loving like a God in whom we have faith. So the text is calling us to pursue holiness by supplementing our faith. By, by taking the grace of God that we've been given in Jesus and adding to it. And this is an active thing. We have been called, which is passive. God has done the acting there and calling us to himself. And now we are called to supplement the faith that we've been given with obedience and holiness. And so the question for us should be, how do we do that? I can hear you saying that this is what we should do, but how do we do that? And so I've comprised a completely unoriginal list of four things that the church historically has done to do that, and that we should continue doing. First, we should pray. We should pray that the Lord would transform our minds and our hearts, such that our behavior would follow them. We should pray that the Lord would give us deep fellowship with him through his Son and by the power of his Spirit. We should pray expectantly, knowing that God has promised 
to hear and respond to his children when they call upon him. We should pray that God would be faithful to his promise, that he would send Jesus to return for us in justice, glory, and splendor, in full deliverance, and so that we might fully taste and see his excellence forever. The second thing in the list is that we should read scripture. We should read the Bible knowing that God has gracefully made himself known to us. We should read with the desire to understand the nature and character of God more fully. Even when we read that God might not be exactly the way we thought or we hoped that he was. We should read to seek the commands of God. And then we should seek to orient our lives around those commands rather than trying to orient the commands around our lives. We should read to see how God's people have been faithful and how they have failed throughout covenant history. And we should read because in reading scripture, we will remember and grow in our knowledge of the simple gospel message that Christ has lived for us, died for us, risen from the dead for us, and will return again for us. The third thing on the list is that we should submit ourselves to Christian community, to the church. We should commit to the church because Jesus has called the church his bride, and he loves her and is deeply committed to her. And so we should also love her and be a part of her. At Sojourn, that looks practically like committing to a group of people called a neighborhood parish. And, and in your neighborhood parish, seek to be honest with your gifts and with your weaknesses. Confess your sins. Share your sorrows. Let your brothers and sisters share the gospel with you. And celebrate together when life brings things worth celebrating. In Christian community, you will learn from others the depths of God's love for you. And you will grow in your ability to walk in obedience as you see that modeled in others and as others spur you on to good works. Moreover, as you sit under the teaching of the church at the Sunday gathering, you'll be reminded of God's grace and love and commandments. And as you participate weekly in the Lord's Supper, you will physically and spiritually be by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and remember what he has done for you. And the fourth thing on the list is probably even the most practical, yet the most difficult, and the one that most of us won't want to do. It's just practicing obedience. And I say practicing because obedience does not often feel natural for us. And it especially doesn't feel natural in areas where we have historically struggled so we should practice resisting our sinful desires, sharing them with our brothers and sisters in Christ through our neighborhood parish, and walking in obedience to God's commands, even when it doesn't feel normal, natural, and fun. Over time, you'll see that your heart will begin to love the things of God more and more as you seek to be obedient, and it will hate your sin more and more as well. This is discipline, and it is hard, and you will surely fail. And in some seasons, you will fail more than you succeed. But press on, 
in the love of God's community and by the power of the Spirit that He has afforded you, knowing that you have all things necessary for life and godliness. As we move into verses 8 through 11, I want us to consider two gardeners. Two gardeners are given the same plot of soil, the same climate. They're given the same seeds already planted in the soil, the exact same circumstance. The first gardener daily goes out to his garden, watering and pruning and fertilizing, caring for the plants by removing harmful insects. He doesn't have control over the weather. He didn't even prepare the garden at the start. But he does have control over his diligence with the garden. So he spends his time being faithful to it, nurturing the garden, and over time, by God's grace, he begins to see that seeds sprout and shoots pierce through the soil. Flowers come and fruit is produced. And season after season after season, he is diligent in his garden, knowing that if he takes time away from it, that he may begin to see leaves wither, flowers fail, and crops die. The second gardener is given the same plot of land, the same soil, same seeds are planted. He, however, does not go to his garden daily. He generally neglects it. Maybe once a month or every couple of weeks he thinks about it and decides to go out and lazily water plants. And over time he sees that there's no fruit. And there are just yellow leaves and wilted flowers. And, and moreover, he notices that there's a lot of soil without even a sheet of stem piercing through. The difference in these situations is that a negligent gardener will not have plants that bear fruit. It doesn't happen. No matter how good the weather is, how healthy the soil was, or any other circumstance. The problem with that situation was not with the garden. It was that the caretaker of the garden proved himself to not be a gardener because gardeners take care of their crops. And this is much like the Christian life. Our walk with God is a relationship with purpose that is initiated by the graceful gift of faith. And the purpose is for us to experience the glory of God and worship God as we make his glory known to all around but this does not happen passively and it doesn't happen overnight. And it cannot stop. A Christian who is greedy but diligent in his pursuit of Christ will slowly, over time, grow in the qualities of godliness. He will see greed replaced with generosity as his faith is supplemented with higher standards and an understanding of the holiness of God. Through the teaching of the Bible, he will begin to pursue generosity and faithful stewardship of his resources, even though at first it won't feel natural. Eventually, his love of self will be turned completely into love for others and for Christ. But if he stops pursuing holiness and the goodness of God, he cannot expect to magically continue to grow in obedience, faith, and love. In fact, what he will likely see is that his love for others and for God will revert back to love for self. And greed will once again consume him 
We know this because the Bible consistently reminds us that the wages of sin are death. And so a lack of pursuit of Christ regularly and wholeheartedly will lead to our faith dying and proving to be untrue from the start. The problem will have not been with the gift of grace. It will have been that we never showed that we actually had faith in it. Peter goes on and he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter is telling us that as we grow in holiness, it makes us better ministers of the gospel, both individually and corporately, as it allows for us to accurately reflect the glory, beauty, and excellence of Christ. But failing to grow in these things is a cause for concern. Primarily because it reveals that we have forgotten that we have been forgiven of our sins in Christ and have given a new citizenship and a new identity. But we must have reasonable expectations of growth in Christ. First, we must know that, that we are not doomed if there has been a season in which we've been neglecting our faith. There's grace still. And we are not doomed if we're pursuing those things regularly and we're not seeing growth. Peter's not telling us that we need to immediately walk free from sin and in complete holiness at the moment we first believe. He's telling us that we need to have our whole hearts devoted to pursuing this for the rest of our lives. Growth in holiness, obedience, knowledge, self-control, and love are things that we should expect to happen over the course of months, years, and most likely decades, not over the course of hours, days, and weeks. We shouldn't expect all of our old habits and our old mindsets to be immediately replaced by new godly habits and new godly mindsets. But we can be sure that as we submit ourselves to God, His Word, time with Him in prayer, as we commit to Him and His people, and as we constantly are reminded and remember who we are in Him, which is forgiven, beloved, and blessed children, we will grow. The old self will slowly peel away as our new self is revealed. And we will experience and participate in the beauty of God more and more until we do so fully in His glorious and heavenly kingdom. And we'll see others come to know him as well. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This shows us that we should be diligent in this pursuit of holiness because it is a sure fire way to have confirmation of our salvation. Pursuing God daily within the context of his people and marking our growth over time is one of the primary ways in which we can know that our faith is true, that our salvation is real, and that we will never fall away from him. 
Assessing our growth is a way for us to determine whether or not we are caring for our faith in the ways that Peter has called us to. The good works of righteousness and changes in our character over time do not produce our salvation, but they do prove it. They do give us something that we can look to and say, the Lord truly has called me from death to life because I used to love money and myself, and now I love generosity in others. I used to be overwhelmed with lust, and now I'm overwhelmed by the glory of God and the beauty of his people. Over time, we will see these things happen, and then we can be sure that we are not falling that the Lord is by the power of His Spirit sustaining us and that we are enduring faith. Good works do not produce salvation, but they do prove it. Verse 12, Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter tells his listeners that he's going to keep reminding them all the time of the qualities that they're to be seeking in their lives and of the truth of the gospel. He doesn't say he's doing this because they don't know it, but he's going to do this precisely because they need to always remember it, that they're prone to forget it. And so likewise, we should, in the context of our neighborhood parishes, remind each other regularly of the truth that God has gracefully called us into a relationship with himself. That he's given us the ability to walk in holiness and that we should spur one another on in reminding each other of the grace we've been shown through Christ. This is also the root of the loving practice of church discipline. The people of God must have a desire to remind one another of the things we already know that Christ is our life, that his love for us is sure, and that we are called to pursue the fullness of joy, the fullness of life, the fullness of love and commitment to him. The truth is that on your own, you cannot and will not walk in holiness. You cannot and will not on your own experience the beauty of God by partaking. There is no category But Jesus has been perfectly holy for you. He is the beauty of God revealed to men, and he has given you his spirit to help you pursue a life that leads to joy, everlasting life, and the participation in his wonder and majesty and excellence. Moreover, he's given you a people to belong to, that you might spur one another on in trusting Christ and being diligent to supplement your faith with growth, with knowledge. So if you're a believer, the application for our text this morning is very clear. Keep believing. Keep believing the gospel message that Christ is completely sufficient for you to give you a relationship with God, to cleanse and forgive you from your former sins, to give you his spirit to sustain you and empower you to experience life and godliness. And eventually, slowly, more and more all the time, to participate in the beauty of God, in his very nature. And that can begin today. 
So this text serves as both an encouragement that we can experience the glory of God and participate in holiness, but it also serves as a graceful warning that if we are not diligent, we cannot trust that the ground we stand on is solid or that our faith is true. And so take hold of the promises that God has given Take heed of the warning that Peter has given us and pursue godliness slowly and surely, day by day, with everything you have, that you might get to experience the fullness of joy in knowing Christ and all of his splendor. If you're in the room and you've yet to place your faith in Christ, if you've yet to trust in Jesus as Lord, I would invite you to trust him. You can pursue a lot of different things in your life. You can pursue joy and identity and community in a lot of different ways. But the only area where your wholehearted devotion will be found in eternal life and joy and participating in the fullness of the beauty of the God who created all things is by devotion to Jesus. And so this morning, I would invite you to consider trusting in Him and pursuing a life of devotion to Him that will produce joy unlike you have ever experienced. It will produce life that will never end. And in which you will experience love that you can't experience otherwise. Let's pray. Lord, would you by your spirit call us more and more to yourself. Make us a holy people like you are holy, God. Make us a holy people because we want to taste and see your goodness more. We want to experience the joy of communion and fellowship with you even more than we do now. And we want to be ready and sustained in you on that last day when you return. God, I ask that by your spirit you call us to repentance and faith, not just today, but every day. And for some in this room, maybe even for the first time this morning, I ask that, that you would call them to yourself, that they would know you and be given all things in you that pertain to life and to God. Thank you.